0: Hi, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. Welcome and thank you for joining us today. I just finished talking with John Tresh about his really wonderful and beautifully written new book, The Romantic Machine, Utopian Science and Technology After Napoleon. This came out in 2012 with the University of Chicago Press. The book does several things at the same time, and it's really wonderful for readers interested in history of science, history of Paris, history of philosophy, or readers who are particularly interested in contemporary French theory and are in, are looking for... A history of some of the roots of the ideas that went on to form the bases of thinkers like Merleau Ponty, thinkers like Deleuze, um, and a lot of the kind of contemporary theorists that animate what we think of when we think about continental philosophy and philosophy of science in particular. So it does this by taking us into a series of chapters each of which introduces a central figure and a central kind of machine, a romantic machine that that figure developed or used in order to work through and contribute to the development of a philosophy of mechanical romanticism that ultimately, as you'll see by the end of the conversation and by the end of the book, helps lay the foundation for the revolution of 1848. So What John does over the course of these chapters is he's charting a series of transformations. Transformations in the idea of what a machine is, transformations in the idea of what nature is. So you see the emergence over the course of the book of an idea that nature has a history and that nature is also subject to transformation by humans and their technologies. There's also a theory of knowledge that emerges that's very new that centers on the idea of the importance of the senses, the importance of other kinds of inner faculties, of the observers of nature, and the devices that those observers are creating in order to know about and experience nature. And there's a new political sensibility that emerges over the course of this book as well. So, what you'll hear in the course of the conversation to come is you'll hear us talk about some of the thinkers and some of the really important ideas that come out of this uh, grouping, this assemblage of topics. But what you should also know is that if you go to the book itself, there are really fascinating depictions of particular works, operas, paintings, illustrations in books, machines, automata, um, philosophical tracts. It's just a wonderfully transdisciplinary account of really a world of ro- um, romantic machines and mechanic romanticism, mechanical romanticism over the course of this story. And so not only is John, I think, giving us a picture of uh, people in a history of people who are interested in world making. He's also making a world for us. And it's a really beautifully written world. It's a fascinating world. And it's a world that I very much enjoyed being part of um, for the pages of the book. And it's a world that I encourage you to pick up the book and be part of yourself as well. So I really had a, a great time talking with him. Um, and thank you for listening. And I hope you have as much fun as I did in the course of the next conversation. See you soon. I'm here today to talk with John Tresh about his really wonderful new book, The Romantic Machine, Utopian Science and Technology After Napoleon. Welcome to New Books in STS, John, and thanks so much for making time to talk with me today. And I'll just get right out there at the very beginning. This is an amazing book. It's a beautifully written book. It's a wonderful book, and I'm really, really grateful that you're making time during your summer to talk about it with me. So thank you so much and welcome to the channel.
1: Thank you, Carla, and thank you for inviting me. Thanks for those very nice things you just said and uh, for taking the time to have read this in depth. I've listened to several of your interviews, and it is amazing the amount of work that you put into getting to the heart of of books, and I'm delighted that you took the time uh, with mine. So I'm looking forward to talking.
0: Well, thank you. It's really a pleasure. So, John, could you start us off, as is kind of traditional for the channel, by telling us a little bit about how you came to this field, and in particular, how did you come to work on the history of science in France?
1: In France, okay. Mm -hmm. Um, I started as an anthropologist, or as a budding anthropologist, uh, as an undergrad, and was very interested in different cultures, different cosmologies, different ways of in which people organize their society and make sense of nature and the rituals and practices that make that possible. And then I started to get into the history of anthropology, which naturally led me into the history of science, and at the same time picked up on what a lot of people were doing in anthropology, which was ethnographies of laboratories and anthropological studies of Western science, and came to realize, along with uh, a lot of the people I was reading, that... If you really want to make a comparison between different forms of knowledge, uh, between what we do in the West and what uh, other cultures do, and also between what we're doing now, the way we see the world and how we saw it in the past... um, It's really important to look at science. Science has a real central role in our cosmology. So, studying other cultures symmetrically with ours means getting to know how science works and what role it plays in structuring cosmology and everyday life and how it fits into everyday life and social order. So, that's an early route to how I got into. History of Science and Anthropology of Science via Anthropology and History of Anthropology. How did I get to France, or to studying French topics? Um, One of the things that I read during my year, my my master's year, was Edgar Allan Poe in a lot of depth, and was reading his science uh, writings, and his writings on science and technology, seeing how how machines influenced his imagination. And Reading more about where Poe was coming from, I realized that his importance as a literary figure really comes from the influence that he had in France. Charles Baudelaire translated him starting in 1846. And to make sense of why Baudelaire made those translations and what they were about, what the significance was, and why he invested so much of his time and energy into promoting Poe's work, um, I really needed to get to know what was going on in France at the time. And the the wider context of Baudelaire's literary work, the politics, the technology, the science that was going on when he was discovering Poe for the first time. So that, which was kind of background work, to make sense of Poe, turned into foreground work. And I wound up getting immersed in what was going on in France in the, say... 3 decades before 1848 before this translation and i think Baudelaire shows up in this book maybe once and Poe i think maybe once but they kind of dropped away when uh, i realized just how fascinating this this overall setting was and all the exchanges and communication between what was going on in science, in the history of science, but also in the history of the arts and literature and new technologies, how, how people were making sense of those. And around this turning point of 1848, right, it's significant that Baudelaire made his translation right before this revolution, this workers' revolution, um, how all of these exchanges among these different fields were connected to changes in and, and tensions in the politics of the time. And so all, all these uh, developments in science, arts, uh, philosophy were also inseparable from the technolo- or the political upheavals that followed Napoleon and led to the revolution of 1848. So that's not just France, but also France at that time, how I wound up there. And of course, I'd been uh, super interested in French theory, uh, literature, uh, movies, etc., um, and it was just excellent to be able to uh, dive into some of the earlier roots of French modernism, uh, French modernity, uh, going back to some of these key figures who are occasionally mentioned, but not all of them studied in depth.
0: Great. That's awesome. Thank you so much for mentioning that. And its um, I'll say as well that you have, or one of the really pleasurable things about reading the book is that it's there's, at least it seems to me to be... Um, really clearly influenced by elements of French theory and you have a really light hand in weaving those throughout uh, the, the really beautiful narrative. And so I just uh, was interviewing Thanks. a guy who wrote a book on Deleuze and the sciences. And there's so many moments where I said, Oh, you know, the <laughs> the virtual and Oh, there's but you're, you do it in a way that's not um, heavy and doesn't hit you over the head with it. But I think there's a lot in here for people, in other words, who are interested in the ways that a very, intimate knowledge of French theory can shape a history of science without, you know, posing it as, here is French theory used to read the history of science. So it's a... Thank you. Oh, thank you.
1: Um, And and along those lines, um, you know, I do mention some contemporary or recent uh, figures Mm -hmm. in the text. They're all over the footnotes, of course. Mm -hmm. Um, But... Uh, in addition to you know using that theory you know the very various many different strands of it to make sense of this period um, to make sense of this historical object an extra enticement to look at this period for me was that the roots of that theory are there they're there in these debates about how do technology new technologies uh, relate to humans how does technology relate to to the social and political order. What is modernity? These are all being hashed out at this time period. And these authors and these the, the themes that start at this time um, get reinterpreted and are actually the sources of a lot of the theory, the more contemporary theory that I was actually reading. So you know, Deleuze shows up in, in various points, but Deleuze spends a lot of time writing about Geoffroy Saint-Hilaire and, in, a, in an entirely dehistoricized manner. So part of what I was doing was putting some of the sources for, for this theory in their historical context.
0: That's right. And, and that was um, something that I hadn't realized um, and something that was really wonderful about the book. I mean, so much of, um, there's so much talk right now about ontological turns, right, of anthropology, of history. Sure. And so much of that is about creating a kind of philosophy of relationships and relations. And that's yeah. very much at the heart or the roots of that are very much seem to be at the heart of um, the book and the, the historical period that you're looking at. So it's, it's um, really wonderful in that respect as well. And I mentioned that explicitly because listeners with an interest in the roots of French theory might not realize that that's um, Mm. something that's in the book just from the title. And so listeners with an interest uh, therein, (laughs) definitely check it out because it'll be, I think, surprisingly um, relevant to those kinds of issues. Okay, so the book looks at mechanical romanticism, and we'll talk about what that means in Paris in the early 19th century. And you've already talked a little bit about what brought you to that, uh, the kind of constellation of topics that make up the focus of the book. So how did you, because uh, this started off as a dissertation, right? Or the the root of this was uh, a a dissertation project. So can you talk to us a little bit about that transition? Were there any major transformations for you (laughs) from dissertation to book and how you
1: were conceptualizing the
0: project, how it was built architecturally or um, anything related to that?
1: Uh, yeah how many transformations this is more of the question. Um, the original uh, dissertation was half um, French and half American, and actually Poe and Baudelaire were at the center of it and I, I spent a lot of time talking about the context of American science in the in the early nineteenth century poe 's training um, uh, training with uh, a lot of the, the same sources that I wound up studying that, in France, French. Um, he he kind of had a French scientific and literary education, that completely disappeared. I'm saving that for another day. Um, and as a result, a lot of space opened up for other figures to take more uh, of a central role. Um, so uh, some of these, some of the chapters, some of the, the people mentioned here um, weren't in the dissertation at all. Um, they're all treated in a much more expansive way, um, the ones who do recur. I mean, Arago was there, François Arago, and Alexander von Humboldt, um, and the Saint-Simonians a bit, but uh, and Comte, of course, but um, not in the same depth. So it really was a matter of, first of all, getting rid of about half of what the dissertation was, and then taking the rest and expanding it, and reading a lot more, and filling in a lot of of gaps. And along with that, of course, there were a lot of structural changes. I didn't have the idea at the start that um, every chapter would be a single machine or technology of some sort, along with a figure or group. That's now the the structuring principle for it Um, it wasn't divided into the kind of three big sections that it is now I got uh, really amazing comments from uh, one of the readers at Chicago the publisher um, where I had some chapters that were much more of a grab bag or I had some short kind of scene type chapters that uh, stood alone and that reader advised me to combine them and that I think was good advice.
0: Fabulous. Thank you. So let's get right into it, um, then, shall we? So the book is separated into three parts, as you've just discussed, devices of cosmic unity, spectacles of creation and metamorphosis, and engineers of artificial paradises. And we'll see how they build on one another and how they work together over the course of the conversation. The story, story, as you lay out right in the introduction, is marked by several transformations. And these transformations ultimately bring about or mark the emergence of what you call a new cosmology. Now, there are several of these transformations. One of these is a shift in the image of the machine from, um, as you put it, an idea of balanced inhuman clockwork to a romantic machine, as you put it, exemplified by the steam engine and other technologies of conversion and transmutation. So we'll talk about the steam engine, we'll talk about conversion, but before we get there, because this is such an important part of this early part of the book and of the work itself, can you explain for listeners um, your concept of a romantic machine. What is a romantic machine? And what do we need to know about that in order to, to lay the groundwork for moving forward into the book?
1: Well, as you suggested, it makes more sense if you contrast it to a more familiar understanding of a machine. And I call that sometimes a classical machine in the book. And you might think of it as a modernist or even a Newtonian machine, uh, a, clock, a clockwork. And in that view of what a machine is, um, which, you know, it's a very complex view, but it's also, I think, the one that we find most ready to hand when we say, oh, that's just a mechanical treatment of something or something functioned in an automatic, mechanical way. Um, in that in that view of a machine, you think of it as being made up of uh, distinct parts that transmit a force passively. Um, they work together, um, but there's an external force that moves them, and they are discrete parts that each you know functions uh in, in entirely predictable, deterministic ways. Um and frequently, you know, this is going back to uh seventeenth century mechanical philosophy, um which you know is part of the philosophy of this this kind of classical machine. It's that's where it gets worked out. Um it is frequently understood in terms of primary qualities, right? It's it can things that can be measured, location, uh, movement, weight, etc. Um and it is something that it's known f- with uh, a kind of objectivity, right? Known from a divide uh, b- which separates that kind of primary quality object from the knowing subject, um, and so all the elaboration of how to gri- how to arrive at that objectivity, how to create that separation between subjects and objects, which you know we've seen so much in the history of science. Um, Relies on this view of of what a machine is and what it is you're trying to g- grasp in nature when you treat nature as mechanical. That is, it's these discrete parts that um, transmit external forces uh, and are ultimately measurable and discrete. So I've used the word discrete about seven times. <laughs> that, that's indiscreet of me, but uh, so basically a clockwork, a Newtonian clockwork, um, and of course it's a simplification, right? And and if I were going to write a history of mechanical philosophy, I would certainly try to show the many rival notions and epistemologies and understandings of nature that are there at the birth of mechanical philosophy, how, how diverse it is. And ultimately, that's what I'm doing for this period in the 19th century, showing that while there are many people who are pursuing a mechanical approach to nature, building many kinds of machines using mechanical uh, metaphors and forms of argumentation and in some ways are continuing what happened in the 17th century, uh, the the treatment of nature as a clockwork and as mechanical. That's all present in the early 19th century. But in addition, beyond this classical Newtonian machine, a new conception of, of machine arises, which isn't modeled on the clock or the balance, but is one of the best models of it is, is the steam engine. So there. You, so what's different between a romantic machine and a classical machine? Well, in the case of the romantic machine, the, the force of it is seen as internal. It, it has a kind of life force of its own. In the case of the steam engine, of course, it's combustion. If you want to get technical about it, that comes from outside. Someone has to light the fire. But once it gets moving, it seems to have a force of its, its own, a movement of its own. And, of course, that connects to thinking about animals, living things, as having some kind of vital force within them, too. Unlike, say, a Cartesian understanding of machine of, of animals as as just automata, uh, automata um, there's a, a view that you can treat animals as machines, but you have to add something which is, other than standard mechanism, a kind of life force, some kind of vitality to them. That's rampant in the 19th century life sciences. Debates about how to make sense of these other kinds of mechanism? It's also part of the physics in dealing with steam engines, in dealing with electromagnetism, um, uh, in dealing uh, with devices which capture the forces of optics, like daguerreotypes. So you've got machines that have a kind of animating principle within them, and at the same time as that, uh, that renders them autonomous in a new way. Right? They don't depend on an external force to you know, transmit what's given from outside. Um, they kind of function, they, they they fire on their own steam, they fire on their own energy, and energetics is a part of this. In addition to that, they're connected to their users and to their outputs in a more seamless way, in a more organic way. They're understood to function that way, and that's part of what you study. Um, what is the, the, the labor that goes in to creating knowledge? Um, so there's a kind of uh, epistemological dimension to this. How do they take uh, inputs in, and then transform them to produce outputs. So instead of, in the classical model, transparently transmitting a force, they alter whatever they take in before they output it. And you know that's clear in the case of um, the steam engine, which is taking heat and turning into this very different kind of thing, which is work. Um, mm-hmm likewise uh, the the daguerreotype for instance the way which is early photography this isn't seen as just a transparent rendering of what's in nature but rather a modification of the light that that enters into it and interacts with the silver the silver plate and uh, the, the kind of complex chemical and in many ways unknown forces within it so it adds the the idea of a romantic machine adds a kind of depth to uh, the machine a kind of unknowable uh, uh, even transcendence to it right there's something going on there that's more than can be immediately seen um and also has a kind of spontaneous uh unpredictable aspect to it that lives and dies so it has that kind of depth but it also connects the the object the, the machine to a wider system of flows of energy of interaction with other machines interaction with humans, and interactions with the natural landscape. So just as in more f- in familiar views of romanticism, nature is treated as an organism which is alive and growing and complexly interconnected. Every part relates to every other part. There's circular causality and not just linear causality. Once you plug these kinds of machines into that wider system, um, you realize that they are bound up organically to... These wider conceptions of organism, too. So that's some of what I'm getting at with uh, the notion of romantic machine. It's a shift from the classical to uh, a whole range of new ways of thinking and using these machines, um, using machines that really alters what our reflex notion of what we mean when we say something's just mechanical.
0: Great, thank you so much. And this shift in the nature of how machines are understood is, is happening at the same time or along with, over the course of the book, a new con- the emergence of a new concept of nature, the emergence of a new theory of knowledge, and the emergence of a new political orientation. As, as we work through the three parts of the book and the chapters therein, we see how these emergences of these new um, ways of thinking and ways of acting um, are happening and are, are bound up with a lot of the kinds of topics that you've um, did, very helpfully described in your description of romantic machines just now. Now you mentioned um, fluidity, or you mentioned flows and fluids, and you mentioned connections, and the first part of the book looks at the work of physical scientists who are concerned with flows and connections, and specifically the uh, flows that are made possible by, as you call it, imponderable fluids of physics. So
1: I didn't coin that term.
0: Or, or uh, well, as, as I, I'm I'm not taking credit for this, <laughs> so you you don't have to take credit either. But I want credit to credit part of this um, part of this wording. So imponderables, uh, so sort of protean weightless, invisible fluids.
1: Yeah, it just means they don't have a weight. Right. You can't me- you can't measure their weight.
0: Okay, so imponderable fluids of physics. So that you can't measure their weight, and also the idea of something called the milieu. Right. this is, as you put it in the book, um, the totality of substances surrounding an organism and forming its conditions of existence. Now, the three people who f- uh, form the center of or the centerpieces of these three chapters that make up this part um, look at different or are working on different elements of this constellation of ideas. And the first one is Ampere. Now, you write about Ampere in Chapter 2. He's developing an experimental device or, or a series of experimental devices to show that electricity and magnetism are equivalent and to measure their force. He, you, you make a point here that's really interesting, and that is his idea that knowledge of the self and world emerge through experiences of resistance. So central to his idea of what's happening here is the idea of resistance, So can you talk a little bit about the importance of resistance for Ampere as it opens up the larger argument in this part of the book?
1: Okay, great. Um, So to say a little bit about imponderables and fluids, um, there's a sense uh, in the physics sort of just before this, uh, which is practiced by Laplace, Laplacian uh, determinism and Laplacian terrestrial physics, um, there's a a drive to study these fluids, these imponderable fluids, electricity, magnetism, light, heat, as distinct. Um, You have analogous ways of of studying them, but they don't interact. They can't affect each other, according to Laplace and his students. And coming from uh, some experimental work, but also the philosophical push from Schelling and students of Schelling, Natur philosophy, there's uh, an interest by a number of people uh, in seeing, in, in in testing whether these might actually be connected, might be able to impact each other, and might also have a shared underlying force behind them or underlying principle, that they may all be manifestations of some Ur phenomenon, some, some underlying. Uh, yeah, principle of nature, and Schelling ultimately wants to say that that underlying force of nature is the same as the underlying force of mind. That it is the world soul be behind and beneath and before um, what we see as the the, the thinking of the mind, the, the the acts of the mind, and the the manifestation or any any activity of nature, and that's especially visible in these um, subtle fluids in the and empirically studying the way they relate to each other, the way in which one can be converted into another, is seen by Schelling and those who who read and follow him as a way of uh, getting towards a confirmation of this identity philosophy, this this view that mind and nature are ultimately the same thing, um, which is a kind of pantheism. So that's part of the philosophical background for what Ampere is doing. He is a friend to Ørsted, the Danish a uh, natural philosopher, natural philosopher who uh, is very close to Schelling, and um, is trying to um, demonstrate and succeeds in demonstrating the interconnections between electricity and magnetism. And Ampere, even though most of the physicists who are followers of Laplace in France at this time would not didn't take this possibility seriously at all, Ampere takes it and runs with it. In part because philosophically, this is um, one of his his, his uh, beliefs, that nature does have these underlying unities, and especially in physics, there are uh, patterns, vibrations, um, conversions that allow you to connect imponderables, that, that show you that the one is a modification of the others. So philosophically, that's something he wants to accomplish, but also politically, within the, the overall framework of French physics, This is a moment after um, Napoleon has fallen um, in the early teens and 20s, or sorry, in the late teens and early 20s of the 19th century for a new group of researchers to sort of take uh, a stronger position within the Academy of Sciences. And Ampere is one of them, Francois Arago, who shows up in another chapter, Um, Humboldt is supporting these anti-Laplacians, and a number of others like Fresnel, who comes up with a wave theory of, of light. Um, So there's a a kind of internal politics to the sciences that's relevant, a philosophical uh, rationale for it, which goes back to Schelling, or it's connected to Schelling. It's also connected to animal magnetism or mesmerism, which a lot of people are rediscovering at this time, including Ampere. His mother gets a mesmeric cure that he's incredibly enthusiastic about. And the interaction between electricity and magnetism, people see as a confirmation of mesmerism, too. And there's also uh, a technological dimension to this, where part of the way that you will prove the interconnections between these fluids is by creating the machines that bring them about, that that test their interactions, that demonstrate their interactions. And so those are the kinds of uh, machines that Ampere develops to test the interactions between electricity and magnetism to test the relationship between an electric current and a magnet an electric, uh, and, the, and the way in which an electric current may sometimes attract, sometimes repel a magnet and sometimes attract, sometimes repel another electric current. So this is the birth of electrodynamism. It's also when you get from a discrete study of electricity and of magnetism as two separate things, sorry, there's that discrete again, to to, to studying electromagnetism. And Ampere who is this uh, polymath who's just interested in the overall connections between every domain of science and every domain of art and and political philosophy and every domain of nature. Um, He just runs wild with this uh, possibility, uh, uh, this discovery of Earthsteads, and creates a bunch of different machines um, to test these interactions. And what I argue in talking about Ampere and his philosophy of science um, is that it, it, to see what he's doing there, it, it doesn't really help to, to take him literally at his word when he reconstructs a... Method that he followed, which in some ways conforms to a Newtonian method. That's the kind of rhetorical norm for doing physical science at the time. uh, That you say you came, you came up with an hypothesis, and then you tested it and came up with a conclusion. That's the argument that he makes when he presents his findings. But as um, Christine Blondel has shown, uh, Friedrich steinle a number of different uh, historians of uh, electromagnetism and Ampere have shown it was a little more haphazard than that. And what I, uh, James Hoffman, has also spent a lot of time trying to get to what Ampere's uh, methods were, or his his philosophy of science was. It's more haphazard, and really he explains it himself when he talks about feeling around, um, tâtonnement. To, to to make discoveries, and in a way, he's feeling around in the invisible, and the the idea of of uh, kind of reaching out into the darkness with a hand, um, and that tactile aspect of grasping the interactions between these invisible forces, and he's using the the Kantian language of noumena as well, right? They're the things in themselves. Um, I think really illustrates what what he's what he thinks he's doing and what he is doing in his in his experiment and that becomes another important aspect of his philosophy of sciences which is that how do we come to know uh the world and he's in a he's in many ways in a Kantian framework this world which we only know the appearances and phenomena of but whose underlying reality is noumenal and which will always escape our are um, representations of it. Well, how do we get beyond those representations? We, to, for Ampere, we we push it around. We put we push nature around, and we feel around. We see where it resists. We see where something responds or pushes back from nature. And those points of resistance, you know, you jot them down in your notebook, and you add them up, and eventually, out of these these points of resistance, you get uh, a sense of the relations that connect. Some domain of nature, for him, any the philosophy of any science has to be combined with all the other fields of science eventually to produce uh, a large map of uh, uh, an encompassing map of of nature and of every field of knowledge, and that's what he devotes the sort of last years of his life to this philosophy of, of the sciences. But it's a shift and a very important one in this in his philosophy from although he's very influenced by Kant and a number of thinkers are of course um it's a shift out of the idea that knowledge is just a matter of representation and moves instead to a view of knowledge as uh, as an interaction with with something that's other than human as pushing and seeing where it responds there's a laboring aspect there's a working aspect to it um it's it's Uh, physical interaction is part of knowledge. Knowledge isn't just um, the the kind of Apollonian view of a set of representations. We get to know the world by understanding where it resists. And that's, you know, I'm I'm spending um, time on that point because it's a, a shift in epistemology that is echoed in many other fields of science but elsewhere. And that's part of what I think... The romantic machine is about, or mechanical romanticism is about, that you're moving away, or these thinkers are, and, and these uh, actors, you know, and, and in the real concrete sense, they're doing stuff, they're moving away from seeing knowledge as just um, thought and representation. And instead, seeing it as active engagement with the world that is producing something new. It's a kind of labor. And that connects to what's going on in politics with the revalorization or the valorization of labor, the emergence of the working class. It's there in new theories of aesthetics, which aren't just about representations of some uh, remote, infinite form, but rather are self consciously designed to produce an effect. Uh, a kind of concrete effect on the senses, on the body, by working with materials. So it's a move to uh, an activist um, philosophy of of knowledge of the arts and also um, of politics. And it's there in, 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 in a kernel in the writing of Ampere about resistances.
0: Perfect. Thank you so much. And a lot of the things that you've mentioned, um, I'll just kind of briefly highlight as other really important elements of what's happening in this part of the book. So Ampere is one of a series of people who, in this part of the book, are bringing together um, sort of aesthetics and instrumentation and are interested in this connection and the kind of bleeding together of the instrument and the user of the instrument. And you take us through um, not only Ampere, but also a chapter looking at Humboldt, um, Humboldt work and specifically the ways that his work raises and engages with a question of the relation of objectivity and the views of freedom associated with it. And you take us into the ways that his views on that are really derived from an engagement, at least in part with Kant and Schiller. And you also take us into a chapter on Arago in which this idea of a labor theory of knowledge and its connection to his work and its connection to this connection between um, the sciences and and aesthetics um, really emerges and becomes a really important um, and continually important part of the story. But as we move from this to this to the second part of the book, we see a reemergence of someone who was also very important to Ampere, and this is a figure, Mendebaran. So you mention in your work um, on Ampere in chapter two that his work, uh, that Ampere's work, is in dialogue with the work of this other guy who winds up being really, really important to what's happening in the second part of the story. Now the second part of the story takes us into the impact of technology on theories of the self and the human, and, it, um, and the human rather, and it focuses on the fantastic arts and on public spectacles that feature new discoveries in optics, in mechanics, and in. Natural History, A focus of um, one of the chapters in this part of the book is the physio-spiritual theory of Buran. So could you take us into what's important um, for you about this, uh, this sort of physio-spiritual theory and the kind of work that it's doing in this part of the book in terms of the larger argument um, that you're making?
1: Okay, great. Thanks for uh, mentioning that. Um and so Mendebiron is, is kind of the hero of chapter, I think, five. And he is, he's one of the people that Omper is talking to um, to the, come up with a new theory of knowledge. Um, and Mendebiron is connected with people called the ideologues um, earlier um, at the end of the 18th century and, and under the empire. And then has his own circle of philosophers and, and thinkers around him. And Omper is part of that. He Mendebiron is well known as uh, an influence, or he's known as an influence on Victor Cousin, um, Victor Cousin, who is a uh, huge figure in, in this period that I'm writing about, although um, he's not central to my story. And in part, it's because that the focus on Cousin has led to uh, a misunderstanding about Mendebiron. C- Cousin has a spiritualist philosophy. He's understood as the spiritualist uh, uh, philosopher, and whose, whose method, like Biron, is, is based on introspection, and it's a direct precursor to certain strands of phenomenology. How do you know uh, what you know? Um, you start by interrogating, well, how, how does that happen inside your mind? Um, you shut out the outside world and look at what's going on inside. And for um, Cousin, that becomes the basis of his whole theory of knowledge, which Makes spirit, right? The the soul or the mind, but you know esprit and mind. We translate as mind, but it also has its religious connotation. Um, that for for Cousin becomes the fundamental aspect of of knowledge, and it therefore reinforces a certain liberal Catholicism. Um, well, that's a, a liberal Christianity which is written into the philosophy of knowledge. Um, that's one aspect of Cousin's emphasis on spiritualism. Um, another is that it winds up presenting all of these thinkers around men to be wrong as saying that all of our knowledge is a projection by the mind, which is a certain kind of misreading or or understanding of what Kant says. That um, you know that that a, a certain view of constructivism that lets people say, oh. Philosophers who look at how the mind, who, who start from the mind, really want to redu- reduce everything into just a representation, and they're not dealing with reality. So it opens up, it it opens those philosophers up to a certain kind of critique, and I think fairly r- correctly in the case of Cousin, who gets a lot of attention as being a spiritualist. Um, so I'm less interested in Cousin than in a number of other thinkers around Mendebiron who, like Cousin, are very interested in how the mind works through studying it internally through introspection, and how how do how do we think? How do we come up with ideas? What is it to be alive and to 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 think and have thoughts and have s- sensory experiences? Um, and how does that relate to, to knowledge? That's those are the kinds of questions that Men to is asking. But where he winds up is in a very detailed analysis of the interaction between the mind and what's going on in the body. Um, the way in which uh, the state of the, the, the body, how much you slept, whether you exercise, whether you're walking or sitting, what you ate, um, all of these things um, affects how you think and the quality and, and the condition of your mind. Um, and has a very elaborate uh, set of, of theories about how the, the movements, internal movements of the, the brain and the muscles and the nerves Interact with this this uh, other kind of reality, which is the mind, and that knowledge comes through this comes out of this interaction between mind and body in this incredibly intimate um, internal subtle way so that 's what Mendebiron is arguing, not a simple kind of spiritualism that all of all of the world or all of nature is just a projection of the mind no it 's a much more interesting Um, interaction. And uh, Merleau-Ponty is is one of the thinkers who draws heavily on Mendebiron. And one of the uh, intermediaries for Merleau-Ponty, the phenomenologist, is Bergson, and before Bergson, Ravesson, Félix Ravesson, who is in the circle of Mendebiron as well, extremely interested in this interaction between mind and body, and especially how mind, um, the mind can uh, create or lead to or direct the formation of habits and likewise how certain kinds of habits which are physical as well as mental can shape thought and makes this the basis for a kind of philosophy of the organism um, how, how living things are a kind of interplay between these, these distinct realities, a kind of spiritual reality as well as this muscular uh, nervous um, and physical reality. So I think it should be clear that that has a pretty clear connection to um, what Ampere is saying about how we know as a kind of interaction between the mind and the, and the, the material world. And Ampere and is explicit about the, the chain of, of uh, relations between sort of things in the world or, or uh, non-human objects and the, the route that the, the, those resistances that they put up have, have to follow through the nerves, through the senses, through the nerves, um, along the muscles, into the brain, and into, into the mind. Um, Ampere is explicit about that. But so is Ravesson, and comes up with this um, philosophy of organism and habit out of it. And likewise, um, it's important for Ampere's aesthetics, his notion of technesthetics, that when we're studying aesthetics, it's not just a mind knowing eternal platonic form, there's all this mediation of, of the body and the different states of the body and the motions of the body all these and all the different aspects of the body, the different tissues and organs that make up the body. Um, and, and in order to produce uh, aesthetic effects, you have to know something about that that physicality and also something about the regularity of, of the reactions that readers or viewers or listeners will have in relation to pieces of art. So there's an aesthetic dimension. There's, with Ravesson, this biological dimension aspect of Biron's influence. Um, There's also uh, a big impact that he has on um, those who are thinking about how does magnetism work? How does one person, uh, the magnetizer, that is to say, when I'm saying magnetism, I'm thinking about animal magnetism or mesmerism. How do mesmerists bring about a cure? How do they take the patient and put them into another kind of state of mind? Um, What interaction between mind and body is happening in that kind of intersubjective Interaction. Mm-hmm. Um, it likewise shows up in the philosophy of Pierre Leroux, who is uh, a social philosopher who gets his own chapter later in the later in the book, where the interaction between mind and body, internally but also externally, is the focus for understanding what the human is. Right? Are we just individuals? His answer is no. We're part of a milieu. Um, we're part of uh, an extended environment, which is, as you pointed out when you brought up that term, um, the kind of totality of physical qualities. Some of them are imponderable fluids, light heat. Um, some of them are um, biological, right? What's our ecological niche? But others are human what's the social milieu that we're part of in in this really uh, kind of uh, ecological sense of of milieu, and also technology. What are the machines that we interact with to produce the things that we produce? How do we change ourselves, and how do we change this milieu by interacting with the various parts of them, some of them technological? So there's all these outgrowths um, of this very quiet philosopher, Mendebiron, quiet, I think, concretely, like... Uh, the The people who write about him um, describe his his stillness and his discretion uh, as a as a philosopher um, and he 's writing all the time about what happens to him while in conditions of very deep silence. Um, what happens to his mind um, when he 's not receiving external stimuli, but also quiet because he didn't publish a lot of this in his lifetime and transmitted it. Uh, through through this circle of philosophers around philosophers around him, and so you see these kind of um, unexpected and really um, large impacts that this this quiet philosopher had through these many different fields, which are moving us out of a, a representational philosophy of nature, right? A purely representational philosophy of knowledge. Instead, knowledge is about embodiment. It's about being in the world. Um, it's about physiology as much as as much as it's about. Thinking, and it's also not one. It's not an epistemology or an epist- or an aesthetics um, that's purely individualist, but rather one which ha- looks at the way in which bodies are connected to other bodies and parts of collectives of, of humans and and of non humans too. So he he turns out to be quite neglected and quite significant for. Uh, the kind of ripples that his, his thinking has the, 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 the outward on other, on other thinkers. Ampere is one of them, so is Leroux, so is Ravesson, and so uh, is Alexandre Bertrand, who's one of the thinkers of magnetism.
0: Great. So just as the book is helping us, along with um, Ampere, perhaps feel around in the silence and feel around in the invisible, there's also a lot of sights and sounds that are really mm. fascinating that come out of um, this part of the book in particular, but really throughout the book. So, um, you you know, in addition to taking us into these really fascinating um, sort of philosophies and the development of these ideas, this part of the book also takes us into some really great examples of, you know, panoramas and dioramas, operas, symphonies, And in the sixth chapter, when you're looking at popular displays, you take us into not only museums and expositions, but also magic shows and a particular collection of um, illustrations for something called Another World, which was published in 1843 in installments. That's just really, really striking. Um, And I wonder if you could talk about um, Granby's illustrations for Another World as they are kind of manifesting what you're doing in this part of the book as well
1: okay uh, thanks um, i'm glad you noticed that and um, yeah the what i've said so far has been um pretty much at the level of ideas and you know I 'm not going to show you any pictures this is these are podcasts <laughs> which is interesting um, that you know this is the, the, the we're still in the medium of, of the verbal despite the, the transformations of, of the media through which we're transmitting it um, there the people who are working at this time are thinking very much about how media transform um, everything that's conveyed along them and you mentioned milieu in its kind of ecological sense which de- which develops out of some, a number of thinkers, the uh, Cuvier, Geoffroy de Saint-Hilaire, they're thinking about the conditions of existence of, of an organism, and especially Humboldt, Alexander von Humboldt, who's interested in the, all the different dimensions that make up an ecological niche. And milieu means that. But there's also the view or the, the meaning of milieu, which is an earlier one, which goes back to some of the, the translations of Newton um, into French, which is simply a medium, which is the space in between uh, between a sender and a receiver, um, between two bodies as well. And that's that's one of the ways it connects to the notion of an imponderable flu- fluid. Um, light, heat, electricity, for a lot of the thinkers of, of this time, they require a, a specific kind of medium to be conveyed through or or across or within. And that's an ether of various kinds. There's an ethereal basis to to the milieu. Um, So a lot of these thinkers are are very concerned with um, the nature of that milieu as a physical object or a physical entity. I guess it's an object. Um, But also as um, the the machines that capture it, that make use of it. How do you convey a sound? How do you convey light? Um, How do you convey thought? So there's a lot of thinking about the medium of the press and of printing. How do you convey uh, the impression that a visual uh, landscape produces? And so there's a lot of thinking about the, the materiality of, of, of painting. Um, how do, how do um, splotches of, of color on, on a canvas produce a certain kind of effect? So this is very close to a lot of work you know recently about the importance of media and the way in which different media change the, the impact of um, whatever it is that's conveyed. And part of this ferment of of the the period I'm studying is due to the emergence of lots of new media. Um, Steam printing, right? Printing on a much wider scale, new kinds of reproduction too. So more and more people are reading more and more material. Printing is uh, seen as this uh, Promethean uh, power, Transforms um, that that you know captures the fire of the gods and and really transforms humanity transforms the world by spreading the word uh, by spreading the word of, of philosophers of poets etc. Um, but also of course uh, Ampere's work on electromagnetism sets up telegraphy which uh, comes into use in this period photography uh, at this time and lots of um, explorations with conveying sound um, and light in visual effects, like in the dioramas, um, in the panoramas, and also in opera, new ways of producing sound effects. So. This really new sensorium, this new kind of sensory landscape, where all the senses and the ways of amplifying and transforming them are on everyone's mind and are part of everyone's everyday experience, in Paris, in the streets, um, opening up a newspaper, in concert halls, in salons, in um, painting, in, uh, uh, painting salons, um, basically everywhere. Right, that's on people's minds. That's that's shaping how people experience themselves and, and think about themselves and think about nature, and they're extremely self-conscious about this. So they're writing and, and painting and, and working, uh, making sculptures about, the, about these media, about these machines of, of transmission but also they're seen as machines of transmutation, of transformation, that they, they alter things as they, as they pass a signal or a wave along. So media, self-conscious reflection on the media is a big part of all the romantic arts, and no nowhere more than in the work of Granville, who is a uh, an illustrator um, who is very conscious of the conditions of, of writing he con- or of, of, of illustration and of of publication in general. You know how how do you make a profit out of an engraving? And he works very closely with various publishers and is actually you know manages to make himself. Uh, a very well-known and distinctive uh, illustrator, which is not an easy thing to do. right? It's, it's, it's pretty much a new professional identity to be an illustrator. It's not quite the same as a fine artist. Um, it's certainly not the same as a technical artist. right? He's, he's not an engineer. Um, it's not the same as a poet either. He manages to carve out a very distinctive style and uh, identity for himself. And part of his content is... Exactly what he's doing, which is the, the transformations and understandings of, of the individual, of the artist, of the writer, um, of the self, and of nature as brought by technologies. And this book, Another World of his, or his book is called Another World, um, and it's he who, who illustrated it, although the, uh, his publisher is the one who wrote the text but they make a big point of saying the illustrations lead this story it 's not a, mat- a matter of a written story that th- that then gets illustrations. rather, we start with the pictures and then the story comes next so that 's really interesting that this medium of the visual has the upper hand in in the way in which this book is presented another world and it 's kind of useless for me to try to explain the pictures because you need to look at them to see just how how mad they are and how wonderful they are, how many crazy ideas and images and different domains of reality are forced together in these uncanny hybrids um, where you have um, musical instruments coming to life, um, where you have uh, dreams spread in three dimensions across the sky, where you have fish that are made out of parts of birds as well as parts of uh, human-made tools. You have at the bottom of the ocean... uh, uh, the kinds of dice you would throw or playing cards or combs. You have all these strange resemblances between m- human-made things and natural things as though the same kind of processes were at work in both domains of you know, the technical engineering and the engineering of nature. And that is where the, the new conception of nature as being um, it constantly in development, constantly changing and growing, um, deeply interconnected among its different domains, that it's where the, one of the places where that view of nature connects to this extremely uh, involved theorization of how humans engage with nature, the kinds of machines and instruments they make to, to know it and to transform it. And the the weird chimeras and hybrids that Granville creates in his images, in Another World in particular, where every page has some, some new kind of um, uh, strange object or person or animal that's never existed but came into being by juxtaposing or merging together different kinds of things. Right? You see this play out in, in the pages of this text, um, which is kind of a science fiction or fantastic text. It's called Another World. It's, the story is that it's um, a number of social philosophers who go and travel to the limits of this world and in so doing discover other planets where things are organized slightly differently. Um, so it's, it's kind of a speculative fiction. It's kind of science fiction. Um, and actually there's a Bon Designé that was published, uh, a, a French, um, uh, serial, uh, cartoon comic book called Grandeville, which takes some inspiration from this. Um, that's, there's a series of these that came out very recently. Um, he, he poses this as being speculative and elsewhere, but my claim and he 's the one who makes the claim is that these these weird, uncanny, fantastic realms are actually just a reflection of the, the fantastic transformations that are happening in the modern world in in the nineteenth century and right there in Paris, in part in the arts but certainly through technology, through new sciences new. Political imaginaries as well, dreaming up new ways of, of organizing nature uh, and and society, and then putting them into place through new kinds of arrangements, through new kinds of, of technologies. So Granville is in chapter six, as you mentioned, and is kind of pivotal for the the whole um, the whole book in in combining together a lot of the the philosophy of science and the scientific discoveries, ways of thinking about animals and classifying animals. Is there just one kind of animal, as Geoffroy Saint-Hilaire says, or are there multiple fixed species, as Cuvier says, Um, and, and ways of thinking about knowledge as a kind of Uh, engaged, embodied production that's active and involves the imagination in lots of ways. He's combining that with um, the whole range of new technologies, the whole range of new arts in this literally fantastic uh, um, work called Another World. And that's part of the reason that he gets so many pictures in in the book um, because you need to see the pictures to really grasp um, what I think a lot of people were experiencing at this time, which is the fundamental malleability um, or the profound malleability, if not the complete, certainly not the complete malleability, but the, the really deep malleability of nature and of society, that a lot of this is up for grabs. A lot of this has been recently remade, right? They're looking back to the French Revolution, and they're looking to the Industrial Revolution, and they see that it is being transformed. And the question is, what what is going to be made out of this? What's going to come next? Um, what kind of no- new knowledge? What kind of new organisms? What kinds of uh, new processes or powers will be unleashed by this? What new kinds of social forms will be uh, created out of these new kinds of of powers? And Grosnville is very explicitly asking those questions.
0: So speaking of revolution... Um, as we come to the, really, um, the kind of the conclusion of our conversation um, and the and the last part of the book, we come to a part of the book that we unfortunately won't have time to talk about in detail, but that's really, really important. We'll talk about a tiny little bit. So in the second part of the book that you just, um, I think, very helpfully explicated for us, machines take on an increasingly political importance that sets the stage for what's happening in the third part of the book. I'll just say just a little bit about this and then ask you to open up um, one part of what's happening toward the end. So part three of the book looks at utopian thinkers of the late Restoration and the July monarchy, and it shows how the themes that are explored earlier in the first two parts of the book informed projects that have an explicitly religious inflection. And these are projects of social and natural transformation. So these chapters sequentially take us through um, the philosophy and this kind of religious product or project of Saint-Simon, which is really, really fascinating and shows us throughout this part of the book, also the importance of engineer scientists that make yeah. up the ranks of, um, sort of San Simonian, um, religious, uh, uh groups, right? Mm-hmm. A lot of these uh, followers of San Simon were engineer scientists and you take us yeah. into the important spaces where a lot of them are trained. The Ecole Polytechnique becomes a really important space of production for the kinds of people who are, um, it's, uh, promoting these ideas and getting involved in these ideas throughout this third part of the book. You also take us into um, the ideas of someone who had been a San Simonian, but then launched out on his own. This is Pierre Leroux, who you talked about um, a little bit earlier. And this is a guy who's really concerned with printing. He's a printer and a literary critic. He's the one who advances a theory of the milieu that you talked about a little bit before. And then finally, you take us into um, a really, really fascinating chapter on Kant and really upend, I think, the vision of positivist philosophy and positivism that many people probably bring to the book, which is this kind of very simplistic view of positivism as a kind of denial of emotion, a denial of imagination in favor of you know cold, hard facts. And you're really showing um, a very, very different, a very rich picture of Comte's positivism in this part of the book. So I mentioned these um, just to kind of highlight for listeners some of the richness that's there in this part of the book um, that's, I think, waiting to be explored. Now, as we come to um, the end of the book, one of the things that's happened is that you show the ways in which the kind of reflections that are happening in the uh, sorts of religious thinking and philosophy in this part of the book... Play a role in early socialist projects of political metamorphosis, as you put it, and importantly, set the stage for the revolution of 1848. So, by the end of the book, we've got the stage set for the revolution of 1848. What, um, to kind of bring us to a close here, what are the most important things that you would want to mention? about the ways that the stage is set for this revolution and what are perhaps one or two of the most important elements of that stage setting that bring about in your argument here, the revolution of 1848. What's, what's crucial for us to understand about that? Uh,
1: Great summary. Great question. Um, the, the, the the central one is that this is called the workers revolution and a figure who is there in the book in various points, and in a way, is the kind of invisible star of the book is Karl Marx. He's in Paris at this period. Um, you know, he 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 reads and comments on a number of the people who are are in this book, um, and part of what the the book is is a kind of deep contextualization of. Marxism and really the transition from you know the young Marx to the Marx of Capital, um, where the early Marx is very much connected to romantic notions um, or views that are seen as romantic of the interconnection between uh, some kind of natural force and the human and the human realizing itself through interaction with the external world, creating a new kind of nature by working up its its surroundings. So I mentioned that. Because you know, Marx is saying what's happening in this period, and he's there in Paris as well as everywhere else he's traveling. Um, what's happening is the creation of a workers' consciousness of of the recognition that there is such a thing as a, a class of workers. There's a projection into the past of the ongoing evolution of this class, and he borrows directly from um, the Saint-Simonians and their history of the relationship between industrials and others other classes in society and the kind of history of, of society as a class struggle is there in the San as well. Um, so the emergence of class consciousness and the consciousness of a, of a group, a distinct group called workers, um, Sometimes called industrialists, um, which you know can be parsed and chopped up in slightly different ways according to who you ask at the time. You know who, who is a laborer, what counts as labor. That's the decisive political change that brings about 1848, um, which results in a republic, right, where the the state that exists for everyone and um, under the, the control in various ways by everyone. Unfortunately, it doesn't work out very well. But that's the the immediate. Uh, uh, consequence of the revolution of 1848, this workers' revolution. So part of what I'm trying to to suggest is that the this story, which is well known to labor historians and um, to social historians and political historians, has an aspect to it which requires knowing the scientific history and the technological history. That's no surprise to Marxists, but the science, of course, is crucial to it, and that isn't usually central to the, the, the social histories of the, the workers' revolution. And the epistemology is, is just as important. Likewise, the aesthetics, these different aspects of physiospiritualism, all of which, as I, as I mentioned before, put a new emphasis on the active, laboring, connected physical body as the kind of, uh, kind of core of knowledge, of aesthetic experience, of political agency as well, and connect that, right, the individual body, and which is laboring, which is working, and valorized for its labor, for its work, um, connect that to a wider milieu, which is a social order, a, a collective body. What someone like Leroux, and Comte as well, Make extremely clear is that that social or organic conception of the individual is not just an argument against um, the idea that society is made out of just a bunch of individuals deciding to get along, but that there's a kind of social nature to the human that's prior. Okay, that's part of it, and that's you know something that historians of sociology and social so, social history focus on. But what Leroux and Comte point us to in the way they use the term milieu, the way they borrow from organic uh, theory and and theories of biology, and the way they think about technology, is that that milieu is not just social. It's not just human. It's also formed by machines. It's formed by the instruments that connect us to the non-human and connect us to each other. The media that creates new kind of social um, bonds, new kinds of alliances, new kinds of groups like... Precisely the, the class of workers, so the milieu of the the, the subject of the revolution of eighteen forty eight um, is is crucial, and that milieu is not just social it 's not just a class it's also all of these devices new technologies the powers the virtual powers that they're tapping and unleashing as well as the what we'd now call the environment the ecology the the, the natural support the living support that that makes us and, and whatever we make possible so that's a couple of points that um, where this these many different strands of mechanical romanticism lead into the self-consciousness uh, and the political consciousness that explodes as the the revolution of 1848
0: Fantastic. Thank you so much. And I'll just mention the end of the book then continues to take these ideas and point us forward into the future by showing how some of the ideas that are developed throughout the book are still very, very relevant for today and are relevant, especially as we look toward tomorrow. So... We have talked about a lot of elements of the book, but there's a ton of material that we haven't had a chance to get to. Is there anything in particular that you'd like to mention for listeners, and perhaps especially for listeners who haven't yet had the chance to become readers?
1: Um. No. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Fair I mean, enough. yeah, there, there's a lot we could talk about. Uh, we now, could spend that's... another,
0: like, five hours <laughs> talking about...
1: No, no, nothing know, in anything. particular.
0: Okay. Well, I'll mention just that, um, listeners, uh, we really did just scratch the surface, and there's so much more in here. So I really do hope that people will take this as a, a little... Um, as sort of an appetizer to then go and and read the book itself because it very much rewards um, close reading and it's really, really beautifully written as well. Oh, thanks. So now that the book is out, congratulations on the book. And I know it's already won um, prizes and and gotten lots of very, very well-deserved accolades. So now that this is out, what's next for you, John? What is uh, inspiring you right now? What are you working on now?
1: Um, I'm going to go back and write that book about Poe that I shelved a long time ago. And um, really look at the U.S. in this period through the eyes of what was happening in France, which um, I don't think has really been done very much. So I think the U.S. is going to wind up looking very, very different um, when the, the elements of mechanical romanticism are, are, are traced there. And Poe is one of the people who receives this and, and embodies it. In a way, he'd have been much more at home in Paris in the 1830s and 40s than he was in the U.S., so that's that's a project um, to put his writing on science, his understanding of media, of transmission, and of materiality, materialism, to put that in, in the context of the many different ideas about religion, about nature, about technology that are um, at work in the U.S. at this time. I've got another project which kind of grows out of this, which is to focus on cosmograms which is a term i use in the book right. um which is basically to say that when people are thinking about what nature is and especially when they're thinking about how they want to change it um they usually set down some instantiation of it they create something they create an object they create a painting they, they write a song they write a poem and that's something humans always do right the forms of that of course takes many different forms um and it's a really interesting, to me, level at which to think about what science and other ways of ordering the natural world have been, how, the, how they function, how do people make explicit their sense of the order of the cosmos, where do humans fit within it? What are the key divisions of it? How do you structure them? How do you get from one division to another? And the the question in this in this project for me is what are different What are some of the different forms these have have taken? What different natures, different ontologies, metaphysics, um, cosm- cosmologies do they embody? Um, and how are they used in different ways? You know how do how are they set into action as ways of organizing practice? Uh, And and society. And I've, you know, jotted a few things out about that already, but I think I'd really like to synthesize that.
0: That's great. Well, best of luck with those projects, John. Thank you again so much uh, for letting me take so much of your time um, and for such a fabulous book. It's really wonderful. And best of luck in your new work.
1: Uh, thank you Carla Um, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with me to anybody who's listening thanks for listening Um, and really for taking the time to read the book with with such care it's it's really uh, gratifying Um, and your questions have been superb and thanks
0: you've been listening to new books in science technology and society thanks very much for joining us and we'll see you next time